0: Lamenting to the glory of God, I think uh, a neglected theme, lament, and what it means to lament. I am uh, going to make a book recommendation, and I just want to say at the outset, I don't make anything from this, okay? But this book here I wrote a couple years ago is all about lament. It is called The Path of Life. Blessedness in Seasons of Lament. All right? I'm not going to say it's the best book on the subject. I'll just say it's a book on the subject. All right? A really good book is Todd Billings. B-I-L-L-I-N-G-S. Todd Billings rejoicing in lament. But here's the thing. They don't have any of Todd's books down in the bookstore, but there are some of these. All right? (laughs) There's <laughs> the thing. So if you're looking for a resource and in the next little while wanting to you know dive into this subject in a little more detail, uh, there are resources out there. And what's the one that was recommended to us last night? Deep mercy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's yeah. Deep mercy Dark, clouds. Dark clouds. Deep mercy, and it's vol yeah. vol. Volgram. Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy. I haven't read it, but I've spoken to a few who have, and um, they're uh, very enthusiastic about it. said it's been extremely helpful. Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy. And I think it's just come off... I don't think it's an old book. Within the last two years. Within the last two years. All right, so there are a few resources... And let me, as gently as I can, introduce you to this theme, give you, again, I hope some very simple paradigms for thinking, and touch on a couple of points that uh, I trust will serve you well. Uh, here's where I want to begin, is with Psalm 4. When it comes to lament, the Psalms, it's the, the place to go. And so let's just begin by reading A very simple psalm of lament. It's the fourth uh, where David writes, Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O man, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts. On your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord. Make me dwell in safely safety. We will come back to Psalm 4 in just a moment. For now. notice. I think this is, the, this is the, um, the foundation upon which we build a theology of lament, realizing that we are saved, but we're awaiting salvation. We are redeemed, but we're awaiting redemption. We're adopted. But we are awaiting adoption. We live with the now and not yet realities of salvation. We belong to the age to come. But here we are stuck in the present age. And therefore our reality is a Genesis 3 reality. Our reality is a fallen creation. Our reality are promises. And uh, things yet to come. And so many times in this journey... Uh, we find ourselves passing through seasons of lament. A father's unconverted daughter is making a mess of her life. She refuses to listen to him or anyone else for that matter. She's convinced she knows everything. She makes bad choice after bad choice. He watches helplessly as she plunges herself into an ever-deepening and ever-widening pit of self-destructive behavior. And the question on his lips is, where is God? A wife's dream of a happy marriage evaporates as she discovers her husband's infidelity. They've been married 14 years. How is she going to cope with the betrayal? How is she going to handle the rejection? How is she going to deal with the uncertainty? What kind of an impact will this have on their children? And the question she is asking, where is God? A husband sits quietly beside his wife's hospital bed as she breathes her last. Their dreams of growing old together left in a crushed and trampled heap on the floor. What now? Two small children at home. He's gripped with crushing fear and overwhelming grief. What's he going to do? How is he going to cope? And the only question he wants an answer to is that one right there. Where is God? A woman realizes she's about to lose everything for Christ's sake. She lives in an environment increasingly hostile to Christianity. She has no advocate. She has no way to defend herself. She fears for her life. She fears for her loved ones. She's surrounded by injustice. And she is crying out, where is God? It is a valid question. Don't be afraid to ask it. It is a valid question. You are in good company. David, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Job, oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. I would present my case before him. Asaph, do not keep silent, O God. Do not hold your peace and do not be still. Habakkuk, O Lord, how long shall I cry? And you will not hear. We are in good company when we ask this question because the question, we find it throughout Scripture. It is a valid question. It is a painful question. It's a terrible feeling when someone forgets us. It makes us feel small and insignificant. It's far worse Feeling when someone hides from us. Forgetting is an oversight. Whereas hiding is a deliberate act. What does it mean when God seems far away in times of trouble? His apparent neglect is downright disturbing. He's our heavenly father. And we expect him to act accordingly. It's a painful question. And thirdly, it is a difficult question. Simplistic answers won't do. God has a wonderful plan for your life. Childish answers won't do. Smile, God loves you. Our mindless cliches, all we have to offer the sufferer. We need a thoughtful answer to the dilemma that arises when God seems to hide himself. And in the language of the psalmist, we feel like a wineskin beside the fire. The smoked wineskin, old, dirty, cracked, and good for nothing except to be cast out. Where is God? In those seasons, how do we lament? This is our question. How do we lament to the glory of God? Okay, have I got your interest? You with me? You're tracking through all of that? And so there are five parts in the handout. I want to touch on them, some in detail, some in Not so much detail, but five parts, five themes related to lament that I trust will serve us well. Help us to develop a theology of lament. Help us to lament to the glory of God and maybe equip us a little better. When the opportunity God places at our feet to come alongside those who are asking that question, where is God? That's what we're going to do now. Okay, in forty nine. Minutes. Here is the first theme, the first subject. Um, We need to be able to differentiate between lamenting and grumbling. They're not the same thing. We need to be able to differentiate between lamenting and grumbling. And when we are guilty of grumbling, recognize that it is a sin and we need to confess it and not confuse it with lamenting. Andrew Davis writes, this is not in your notes, just by way of illustration. I was sitting in an airport reading a book describing the Atlantic crossing made by the Mayflower in 1620. It vividly detailed the heaving waves, cold seasickness and impossibility of the pilgrims cooking any hot meals in the dark foul-smelling, vomit-covered areas below deck where they endured the passage. As I was absorbed in this account, I overheard a well-dressed businessman walking by me talking loudly about the experience he had just suffered through. It was a total nightmare, he said. We sat in the plane on the tarmac for almost an hour before we were finally cleared for takeoff. Now I have an extra two-hour layover as a result. I laughed to myself as he angrily bustled by. The Pilgrims, in my story, had a sixty two day voyage in the most wretched conditions, then landed on Cape Cod in November, quickly built some structures, ended up burying fifty one out of the hundred and two members of their community during the harsh winter. We need to be able to differentiate between lament and lamenting and grumbling, and in particular this reality that grumbling ultimately arises from a spirit. Of discontentment. A spirit of discontentment. When our crying. Is an expression of unbelief. It is directed at the world. And expressed in bitterness. That's grumbling. When our crying. Is an expression of unbelief. It is directed at the world. And expressed in bitterness. And we end up on Facebook. Writing all about it. Posting all about it. Okay. Okay. When our crying, however, is an expression of belief, it's directed at the Lord and expressed in meekness. Did you get the difference? Just changed a couple of words there, mixed them up, but the sentences take on completely, radically different meanings, do they not? Back to the first one. When our crying is an expression of unbelief, it's directed at the world. And expressed in bitterness, that's grumbling. When our crying is an expression of belief, it's directed at the Lord and expressed in meekness. Simply put, ungodly crying is a form of complaining or venting, whereas godly crying is a form of lamenting. And we are warned in Scripture we must not grumble as some of them did. First Corinthians ten ten. Who are the some of them? The Israelites. In their wilderness wanderings. On the journey from Egypt to Sinai, they grumbled against Moses. On the journey from Sinai to the promised land, they complained in the hearing of the Lord. Upon arriving at the promised land, all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses. At the outset of their wilderness wanderings, all the congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses. We must not grumble. As some of them did. Well, what is this grumbling? Are you ready for this? Whenever I'm uncomfortable saying something, I like to quote someone else. So there it is. Grumbling is the scum of discontent and the vent of impatience, says Thomas Manton. So you have issues with that, take it up with Thomas, who lived over 400 years ago. But anyway, grumbling is the scum of discontent and the vent of impatience. Impatience. It is complaining about God rather than to God. How can we tell the difference? Here it is. Does it lead to prayer? Lamenting will lead to prayer. Complaining will not. Andrew Wilson writes, Rushing to dump our doubts and questions on friends, on family, or on Facebook, without having gone to, gone to God, is not lamenting, but venting. All right, clear on The nature of grumbling. Second question, what causes it? Pride. We set a high price upon ourselves. Impatience. We resent inconveniences. Presumption. We think we deserve more or deserve better. Greed. We desire something too much. Unbelief. We don't believe God's promises. This is the chief cause of grumbling, this unbelief. They did not believe in God. So this is the commentary, a comment on... The Israelites grumbling. They did not believe in God and did not trust in his saving power. That's why they grumbled. Despite his wonders, they did not believe. They despised the pleasant land, having no faith in his promise. They murmured in their tents and did not obey the voice of the Lord. When they're hungry, they grumble. When they're thirsty, they grumble. When they're tired, they grumble. When they see enemies, they grumble. Why? They could not believe that the wilderness was the way to Canaan. They could not believe that suffering is the way to glory. Do we believe that the cross precedes the crown? Suffering precedes glory. Sacrifice precedes reward. If our expectations are skewed, we won't believe God's promise. And if we don't believe God's promise, we will grumble. Why is grumbling so serious? It tests God. It's relating to, related to putting God to the test These two are inseparable. Thomas Manton writes, in a word, murmuring is a sin that pulls God out of the throne. It denies his sovereignty, power, wisdom, and goodness. Secondly, it disturbs others. Grumbling is contagious. Grumblers agitate those who are discontent, and the result is contention and confusion. It's like adding a spark to dry grass. Proverbs 26.20, for lack of wood, the fire goes out. And where there is no whisperer, quarreling ceases. Third, it injures us. It injures us. Most of our misery stem from a spirit of discontentment. Having provided one of the most glorious descriptions of Christ in all of Scripture in Philippians 2, what does Paul say? Do all things without grumbling. That's fascinating. I mean, you are at the peak as you open Philippians chapter two and there you have Christology in all of its glory and this wonderful description of the incarnation of Christ leading and culminating in his exaltation. Well, what's he going to follow that up with? How can he improve on this? Paul, I'm on the mountaintops here. This is beautiful. What does he have to say now? Do everything without grumbling. There's a direct correlation between the two between theology and practice, between Christology and our behavior. And as Christ looms great in our mind's eye, and as we see the Lord Jesus who loved us and gave himself up for us, um, there we have the impetus. There we have the motivation to mortify this grumbling. It is one of the greatest impediments to spiritual growth. It reveals the condition of my heart. It indicates that I'm in an unhealthy place. It calls for repentance. It indicates that I've lost sight of God's matchless grace. It means I am suffering from tunnel vision. Can't see beyond my problems, my issues, my desires, and my expectations. And I have lost sight of the bigger picture. What is the remedy for grumbling? We need some focus. Focus. We need some focus. Firstly, we need to look at what we're doing. The Israelites grumbling is madness. It's sheer madness. They witness the plagues in Egypt. They witness the pillar of cloud and fire. They witness the parting of the Red Sea. They witness the miraculous provision of food and water, but they are unaffected by it. And because of their unbelief, they grumble. We need to look at what we're doing when we grumble. It just takes stock and evaluate and ask ourselves, have we lost touch of reality? Have we lost sight of the bigger picture here? We need to look at what we're taking in. The Israelites are not alone as they journey from Egypt to Canaan. When they left Egypt, a mixed multitude also went up with them. This multitude is a constant thorn in their side, constant irritant, stirring up trouble. Similarly, we must not listen to the rabble. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They complain, criticize, and murmur. They're never content. If we listen to them, we will find ourselves adopting the same critical spirit. Coupled with this, we must guard our hearts. Guard our hearts. What we let in, what we think about, what we meditate upon. Thirdly, we need to look back. The Israelites forgot so quickly. There were inconveniences in the wilderness, but these were nothing in comparison to what they suffered in Egypt. Abject slavery, physical mistreatment. They lost a generation of baby boys. God commands Moses to keep an omer of manna, about two quarts, as a reminder of his faithfulness. It never rots. This is a miracle, yet the Israelites are blind to it. Oh, how we need to remember God's miraculous provision. A good memory, says Thomas Manton, is a help to thankfulness. A help to thankfulness. Fourthly, we need to look ahead. The Israelites are constantly looking back to Egypt. Would that we had died in Egypt when we sat by meat pots and ate bread to the full. Where should they have been looking? Exodus 3.17, I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to a land flowing with milk and honey. We'll never be faithful in the present if we're still yearning for Egypt. Never. But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. And fifthly, we need to look to Christ. Contentment is not determined by our circumstances, but by what we believe. We must find our ultimate joy and satisfaction in the Lord Jesus. All right. Are you clear on that one? We can't go anywhere with lament until we're able to make that clear line of delineation Between a sin that we are very prone to, grumbling, and understanding that it arises from unbelief. It is directed at the world and is always accompanied by bitterness. Whereas lamenting is actually an expression of faith. And it is directed at God. And it is expressed in a spirit of meekness. And so we come secondly now to understanding the nature of lament. There are 39 individual laments in the book of Psalms. Isn't that something? And 23 corporate laments. That means that 62 of the Psalms, more than a third, are actually cries of lament. I think it's important, don't you? I think it is indicative of what is normative Christian experience. That we, like the psalmist, will find ourselves quite often in times of lament. These psalms are easy to identify. Firstly, they are steeped in darkness. When we read them, we feel like we're lost in a cave without any light. That's kind of the feeling they give you. They're steeped in darkness. They're concerned with a very simple question. How long? How long, O Lord? And the sense of urgency behind this question is heightened by two difficulties. The first is God's apparent inactivity. Why do you stand far off, O Lord? Why do you hide in times of trouble? The second is God's apparent hostility. You have brought me to the dust of death. Concerned with a simple question, how long? And they are structured around three personal pronouns I, the subject, they, the cause, and you, the remedy. That's usually how the psalms of lament are structured. If you just look for those pronouns. I, they, you. I, they, you. And it usually unpacks then the subject of the psalm. The they are the cause. You, the remedy. The prevalence of lament in the book of psalms is an indicator that ought to figure prominently in the experience of God's people. Ed Welch. It is a myth that faith is always smiling. We live in a fallen World, And oftentimes our lives are touched by the ravages of the fall. But thankfully, God has given us these Psalms to give expression to our experience. And so just I'm just going to move quickly now. We read Psalm four in the opening. And let me just indicate for you three great principles that emerge from this Psalm. You can go back and read the notes there on your own. Let me just give them to you so that we have A sense, then, of the nature of lament. Here's the first principle that arises from David's cry in verse 1. When we lament, we draw near to God. This is the nature of lament. It's not running from God. We're actually drawing near to God. We're coming before Him. That's principle number one. Or feature number one, if you like. That might be a better word. Feature number one. And then there is David's counsel, the they. So remember the three pronouns. You have the I, verse 1, the subject. You have the they, the cause of the lament, verses 2 through 5. And a tremendous principle emerges from that section. When we lament, we talk to ourselves. That's what David does constantly in the Psalms of lament. He talks to himself. Martin Lloyd-Jones, this is in your notes. He writes, you need to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself and question yourself. You must say to your soul, why are you cast down? You must turn on yourself, upbraid yourself, exhort yourself and say to yourself, Hope in God. Instead of muttering in this depressed, unhappy way. Here is the gist of what we must say. I don't think this is in your notes, but let me just share it with you. God has set me apart. I'm numbered among his people. I'm his possession. He chose me, purchased me, redeemed me, regenerated me, and adopted me. Now he guards me for a salvation to be revealed in the last day. He holds me with a strong arm even when I feel little joy and sense little assurance. He carries me with a mighty hand even when I limp through life, barely able to see beyond my struggles. He is my father. Psalm 108, verse 4. And his steadfast love is great above the heavens. We talk to ourselves and we preach truth into our lives. And principle number three, when we lament confusion at some point, not necessarily immediately, but at some point, it does give way to confidence. It does give way to confidence. We grow. This is the last paragraph there in your notes. Under this theme of understanding the nature of lament, we grow in certainty as to God's favorable acceptance of us. We enjoy the peace that comes from having God as our friend. We enjoy the assurance that arises from a true sense and apprehension of God's love. All right, so far so good? So we're clear, we're able to say, okay, that's grumbling. All right, and I'm not going to cover that with a cloak of lamenting. I'm going to acknowledge what that is and I'm going to confess it here. I've got a clear understanding now of the nature of lament and what it looks like. And as I am lamenting, then what am I called to do? And what is it? What is it? I I want to be used of the Lord. Uh, How am I going to be used of the Lord in coming alongside others who find themselves in that season of lament And I think the answer to those questions really hinges on what it means to remember God's name. The psalmist declares, I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and keep your law. Skip over that. How we remember. What does it mean to remember? I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and keep your law. In your notes, I write, remembering is not the mere reading or studying of God's word. But musing and mulling over God's word, whereby it grips our heart. Its goal, therefore, is not to fill the head, but improve the heart as we patiently steep the tea bag so that its flavor permeates the hot water. Even so, we immerse ourselves in God's word so that it permeates us. We bring the truths of God to remembrance and seriously ponder and apply them to ourselves. That's how we remember. Why we remember. I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and I keep your law. In other words, the fruit of remembering is obedience. Obedience. It opens the door between the head and the heart, whereby the Spirit makes deep impressions upon our affections. He cultivates love for God, thereby making sin repugnant to us. All told, this means that remembering has a transforming power in it. Thirdly, what we remember. I remember your name in the night. I'm not going to go through this with you, uh, which gives almost gives the impression it's not important. And so let me just pause, look you in the eye, and actually say this is the most important thing in the lesson. But I'm going to leave it to you to read on your own. This remembering, we're clear as to how we remember, why we remember, what we remember. In seasons of lament, there are two lively truths above all else there are two truths we want to go to over and over and over again and as we're speaking truth into others lives these are two truths we want to be front and center and we want to be praying oh lord quicken me and me according to your word and make these two truths come alive the first is this We want to remember God's particular providence, his particular providence, that he is our father and that he cares for us and that he rules supreme over all things. You can skip down through those notes. Just come to the paragraph that opens with this incomprehensible God. Do you see that? With this incomprehensible God before us, we take great comfort in the realization that although His providence is often inscrutable, He works all things according to the counsel of His will. Moreover, He works all things together for the good of His people. We rest in the conviction that this great God rules the universe, His general providence for the benefit of His church, His special providence. And we remind ourselves that we are the apple of His eye. This expression refers to the black of the eye, the pupil. There isn't a part of our body more carefully guarded than this. We instinctively blink, flinch, and turn when we perceive any threat to our eyes. Eyelids, eyelashes, eyebrows, and cheekbones are all designed to shelter the pupil. God protects his children just like that. Anyone, anything who touches God's people touches the apple of his eye. And he rules the cosmos. Providence. For the good of his people. That has to be front and center in seasons of lament. Just this remembering, 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 steeping the tea bag in the hot water so that it permeates our souls. What this means God's particular providence. And the second lively truth is this remembering God's steadfast love. And so there are some notes there under that heading. And I will leave it with you. These are enlivening truths. And when these truths do come alive, we celebrate and we enjoy. We realize that the Father is the source of all comfort, right? When we're really remembering particular providence, providence God's particular providence and God's steadfast love. This comes alive to us. The Father is the source of all comfort. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Father of mercies and God of all comfort. We realize the Son is the cause of all comfort. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort. The Spirit is the means of all comfort. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit... You may abound in hope. Faith is the condition of all comfort. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God and believe also in me. What was it Hudson Taylor said? We don't need great faith. We need faith in a great God. Somebody said something to that effect, wasn't it? We don't need great faith. We just need faith in a great God. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And pardon is the matter of all comfort. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of glory of God. That's number three then. What it means to remember God's name. The fourth part section. Lamenting with the psalmist. When it comes to a counseling context. I think this is the way to go. It is to gravitate to a psalm. Own that psalm. Make it the uh, the focus of your study time, your prayer time, and use it to unpack what it means to remember God's name and what it means to lament along with the psalmist. And so I've given you a case study here, Psalm 13. It's a great one. And um, the things to observe, the way David cries. All right. And you just fill in the few blanks here. David wrestles with his God, his heart, and his enemies. The way he cries. And we want to go through each of these with people. And understand why they're wrestling with God. Why they're wrestling with their heart. Why they're wrestling with their enemies. And how these are all constituent parts of what it means to cry. A cry of lament. And then we lead them into the way David prays. Verses 3 through 4. Consider me. Answer me. Enlighten my eyes. And these would become our prayer requests. And we're using them straight out of Scripture then. And then we would draw their attention to the way David trusts. Verses 5 through 6. David remembers three things he was in danger of forgetting. God's loving kindness. God's salvation. And God's goodness. And it is by means of that remembering. That his lament. Yeah, does not go away in its entirety. But the confidence, the confusion gives way to confidence as he is again brought to the truth of God's word and the spirit of God makes those truths come alive to the soul. All right, did you get that one? Went through it quickly, but the notes are there and you can avail yourself of it. And in our remaining time, I want to camp out then on number five. Some Something to keep in mind in a discipleship mentoring context what it means to develop habits of thinking because this looms large when it comes to this subject of lamenting and what it means to lament the glory of God and um, again when, when it comes to grief counseling when it comes to lamenting we need to be very careful that we're not too mechanistic right um We're coming alongside. We're entering into people's experience. We're grieving with those who grieve, mourning with those who mourn. We simply want to be equipped and ready uh, to speak truth. And so we need to know and be familiar. We have to have those paradigms in view, right? And we have to have those truths internalized at the ready. And that's what I'm trying to give you here. And there are ten lessons that I want to give you and I'm not suggesting I hope you're clear on this when someone's in the season of lament it's not you show up at the front door sit down give them a handout with blanks and say okay we're going to go through these 10 steps It's going to help you that, that's not the way to do it is to have these in your mind and realize that these may be things that need to be communicated and these may be steps that need to be taken. And these are good habits that maybe need to be put into practice. Are you understanding what what I'm saying, where I'm going with this? And so that's what I'm giving you here. I'm not giving you something to hand out and to approach in that kind of fashion, but things for us to appropriate and learn and be able to communicate to others as opportunity arises. What we're trying to do is develop well-worn paths in people's thoughts. Well-worn paths in their thoughts and actions. And so here is one that is very important when it comes to lament. The importance of maintaining realistic expectations. I quoted from Ed Welch before. There it is again. It's worth repeating. It is a myth that faith is always smiling. The truth is that faith often feels like the very ordinary process of dragging one foot in front of the other. And you know what the problem is oftentimes today? That's not our perception of the Christian life. We think we're supposed to be happy and clappy 24-7. And we beat ourselves up because we're just not feeling it today. Um, We need very realistic expectations And understand that at times there is something very God-honoring about obstinate perseverance, even when we don't feel like it. And just putting one foot in front of the other. And keeping on, keeping on. And that, because people will beat themselves up. Some of you maybe beat yourselves up. Because I should be always feeling this. And I should always have this sunny, sunny optimism. And always feeling happy, clappy, and all these things. And so many of our choruses and songs, they're they're, they're so driven that way, aren't they? When's the last time you corporately you ever sang a lament in church? More than a third of the Psalms are laments. There is something wrong. There is something wrong about our worship and even our vision of the Christian life and what it's all about. Uh, Lament figures prominently in the experience of God's people. And that might be a very important lesson in a counseling context because people, we do tend to beat ourselves up and be very hard on ourselves. And sometimes it arises from idealistic expectations rather than a true biblical understanding of reality. Here's the second. Keep your emotions in check. When emotions take over, we are in a difficult place indeed. We become lost in the fog. We no longer engage in calm reflection. We no longer review our past blessings. And we no longer anticipate our future inheritance. Anybody want to guess at what that picture is all about on the screen? John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Castle of Despair and Giant. No, Castle of Doubting. Castle of Doubting and Giant Despair. That's right and Pilgrim, and um, it's not hopeful. Who's with them at that point? Faithful. They find themselves, they've, they've departed from the, the narrow way, and they find themselves in an absolute mess, and they succumb to their feelings, and they ultimately succumb to despair and despondency, and how important it is not to navigate by our feelings. Uh, Martin Luther He said, he quipped all those centuries ago, feelings come and feelings go. And feelings are deceiving. I stand alone on the word of God. Not else is worth believing. We stand on objective biblical promises, not my subjective feelings that are up and down and sideways and all over the place. Uh, How important that is to keep our emotions In check. Uh, Resist the temptation to grumble. Um, We don't need to go back and revisit that one. That was part one. Um, We we fall into that trap of thinking to ourselves, I don't deserve this. I never thought this would happen to me. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. And this gives way to bitterness. This gives way to grumbling. This gives way to doubt and where there's a lack of faith. We then begin to what? We begin to complain and uh, speak to the world. And it often gives way to into that spirit of bitterness. Uh, delight in God above all else. Delight in God above all else. And that goes back to those two enlivening truths. Lively truths. God's particular providence. And God's steadfast love. That as we remember those two. And re- rehearse those two. And personalize and internalize those two wonderful truths. We find our delight fixed on God and we're able to say with a psalmist, Psalm 16, verse 2. You are my Lord. My goodness is nothing apart from you. Talk to yourself. We mentioned that earlier as well. God guards me for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last day. And he is my father and his steadfast love is great above the heavens. The need to talk to ourselves, preach to ourselves. Learn to entrust small things to God. Start with small things. You aren't happy at work. You aren't sure how you're going to pay your tuition. You aren't sure how to deal with that relationship. How do you handle these things? You do what you're supposed to do. Seeking to honor God and you entrust these situations to him. You must learn to do this with small things. Thereby building up to bigger things. What happens when the test result is positive? What happens when a hurricane wipes away everything? What happens when he walks out the door? What happens when death comes calling? We learn to practice this with the small. And we build to the large. Devote yourself to the means of grace. Even when we don't feel like it. Devote yourself to the means of grace. We need good habits. When it comes to our pursuit of the means of grace. Because the spirit of God works by means of the word of God. And our only hope is that God will answer that prayer. Strengthen me according to your word. Give me life according to your word. It's always according to the word. He never works apart from the word. It's the word that we want to come alive in our hearts. Study God's word. We need to study. Especially, This is particularly true in seasons of lament because uh, we, we can't fall into navel-gazing. We're just completely self-absorbed. And we need to break that and study as a good way to do that. Sinclair Ferguson writes, Disciplined, thoughtful, prayerful study of God's Word undertaken with the Spirit's help is what we need. It will change the way we think and consequently the way we live and ultimately the way we feel. What usually happens in seasons of lament, we begin to read God's Word introspectively. That's not what you need. You know what you need? A good hard word study. You need to crack open a concordance. You need to wrestle with something that actually has nothing to do with you. And focus the mind on truths in God's Word. And that is a way of just making the ground stable beneath our feet. Number nine, serve others. Be active. Get active. Do something that forces us to think of someone other than ourselves. Give ourselves away in serving others. And we'll find little time to obsess over other things. And number 10, most importantly, look to Christ. Please remember this. David's sense of divine abandonment. And it is important to read the Psalms of Ascent through this lens. This sense of divine abandonment was felt by Christ upon the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where are you? It is a cry of lament. He trusted in God's loving kindness. He rejoiced in God's salvation. He delighted in God's goodness. And he is an example for us. Moreover, Christ revealed God's loving kindness, God's salvation, and God's goodness. He is the pledge of God's favor toward us. He is the reason we can be sure... That God hasn't forgotten us. He is the reason we can be sure that God will never leave us nor forsake us. As we look to Christ, we celebrate that we are pardoned. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. We are pardoned. As we look to Christ, we celebrate that we are God's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. We celebrate the fact that we are under God's providential care. You are Christ's and Christ is God's. Meaning what? You are God's. We belong to him and he orchestrates all things for our ultimate good. And as we look to Christ, we remember that we enjoy and we celebrate these sweet experiences of God's goodness in this world. Because every good and perfect gift is from above. And we practice thankfulness. As we look to Christ, we know the God of peace. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. And we celebrate the fact as we look to Christ that we are sons of God. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. That we should be called children of God. And so we are. And therefore heirs as for me. I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. And there you have it. Ten habits of thinking. It is essential to develop these when it comes to rejoicing in seasons of lament. Ten minutes early, but I don't think there are any objections. Am I right? I've enjoyed it. It's been wonderful to be here with you. Uh, traveling mercies, those who are hitting the highways, and uh, I trust the next conference in November will be uh, wonderful and uh, profitable, and I do look forward to perhaps seeing you here again down the road, same time next year, maybe. Uh, let me just send us off with a word of prayer, and then we'll call it a day, an afternoon. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your loving kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We thank you even now for this wonderful, tremendous reminder That he has loved us and given himself up for us and there is nothing in heaven above or on earth beneath that can separate us from your love for us in Christ Jesus. As we do struggle in this life and as we do experience tragedy and loss and pain and suffering and as we do at times find ourselves wondering where are you and what are you doing? May you lift our gaze to you into all that you have accomplished for us in Christ Jesus and all that awaits us in glory. And may you, the God of peace, fill us with all joy and peace in believing that by the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, we might indeed abound in hope. And we ask it in the name of Christ. Amen.